You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Uh, Today is a beautiful day, and we're going to get into part five of the Psalms and the Soul. Part five of the Psalms and the Soul. And, you know, I think that all of us have had moments, um, maybe while listening to some sort of speech or watching a news broadcast, maybe listening to a friend tell a story, uh, perhaps listening to a toddler tell a story, or maybe during, you know, a preacher preaching on Sunday, uh, maybe even right now you're thinking to yourself uh, or wanting to yell out loud, get to the point. Has anybody ever felt that way? Somebody's talking, you're like, come on, just get to the point already. We get it. We get it. Get to the point. Maybe you're thinking that right now. Um, I know for me, I've been there many times and anybody who's raised kids kind of gets this idea. We uh, have two sons uh, in their 20s now, 24 and 22. And uh, our oldest son, Eli, this used to be a thing for us when he was younger, Eli loved to tell stories, long, drawn-out stories with lots of details that were not pertinent to the story at all. And so many times he would be in the middle of these stories and we'd be three, four, five minutes into the story and we'd be like, come on, dude, get to the point. Something about it, Eli loves to talk. I don't know where he gets that from, but he loves to talk and he loved to tell stories. And many times over the years, we would say to him, okay, buddy, okay, but I need you to get to the point. And here's what I love about Psalm 117, which we're going to dig in today. Psalm 117 does just that. It gets to the point quickly and powerfully. It is the shortest and many say the the central chapter of the Bible. And in just two short verses, it gives us the entire summary of the gospel story. And so I just want to take a few minutes today to talk about Psalm 117, to encourage you from Psalm 117. Now, C.H. Spurgeon said this about Psalm 117. He said, the same divine spirit which expatiates, which means rights and length, I had to look that up myself, in the 119th Psalm, here condenses his utterances into two short verses, but yet the same infinite fullness is present and perceptible. In effect, what he's saying is that the same spirit that helped pen Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter in Scripture, is the same spirit that penned Psalm 117. And in the longest and shortest scripture, they both carry the fullness and and the most beautiful story of the kingdom of God. Now, Psalm 117 is known as a part of the the Psalm of Hallel. Um, Psalm 113 to 118. It's five uh, chapters that are known, or five psalms, chapters that are known as the Psalms of Hallel. Hallel is a Hebrew word, which means to shine forth or to praise. A Hebrew word that means to shine forth or to praise. It's a, a Jewish prayer or a Jewish song. Matter of fact, these five psalms, 113 through 118, the Hallel, uh, were 
in, in, were intended for the Jewish people to sort of remember God's faithfulness in the saving of Israel. And they also helped them to sort of look forward to declare the gospel um, through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Again, they may not have understood that, but they understood the salvation that they experienced, and they understood that they were looking for a salvation to come. They didn't know it was Jesus per se, but they did know there would be one that would come and deliver them. And this Hallel, these five Psalms, sort of make this declaration of God's faithfulness, how he has saved them, and also how God will save them. Now, we know how God will save them is in the gospel story of Jesus Christ's life, his death, and his resurrection. And the Hallel, these five um, chapters of Psalm, are a major, or were a major part of Jewish tradition, meaning that they would sing or recite these Psalms um, during every major holiday. And sometimes, some even say at the beginning of every worship service, or maybe at the conclusion as a benediction to every worship service, they would sing these Psalms. In particular, Psalm 117, the shortest of them all. So Psalm 117, in short, is um, a call for all nations or all peoples to come and to worship or praise Yahweh because of his loyal love. So it's a call of all peoples, all nations, come, come and praise, come and worship Yahweh. Why should we come and worship? Because of his loyal love or because of his covenant faithfulness. Let's talk about that a little bit. C.H. Spurgeon said this also about this psalm. This psalm, which is very little in its letter, is exceedingly large in its spirit. For, bursting beyond all bounds of race or nationality, it calls upon all mankind to praise the name of the Lord. Amen. Now, what is the reason? Why does it call? What is the reason for the nations to come and praise? Well, the reason is simply this, that his great and everlasting love and faithfulness towards us should cause us to want to praise. Why should they praise? Because of his great and everlasting love and faithfulness towards us. Now, as it says, praise the Lord, all nations. For great is the steadfast love toward great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Let's break down a few of these key words real quick so we get an understanding. First of all, the word great. The word great is the, the Hebrew word gabar. And it's not just about scope and scale, like, oh wow, that's large. Although it does include the idea of scope and scale, it's bigger than that. It's more importantly about the power. The gabar, the power, the power to prevail over sin, prevail over Satan, prevail over death, prevail over hell. So it's not just about how big it is, but about how powerful it is and how powerful it is to prevail. So how great gabar, how powerful and able to prevail is what? How great is his steadfast love toward us? So this everlasting or steadfast love. Right? So steadfast love is interesting. It's the Hebrew word, steadfast is the Hebrew word hased, and love is the Hebrew word hased. Essentially what it's saying is hased, hased. Hased means covenant faithfulness, loyal love, or mercy multiplied. And it's not by accident that it's repeated, his uh, steadfast love or his hased, hased. It's an emphasis. 
emphasis on this idea of God's loyal love or his mercy multiplied towards us as people. So he's saying, look, why should we praise God? Because of his great, uh, abounding, powerful, able to prevail, has said, has said, mercy multiplied towards us. And he goes on to say, also because of his everlasting, and that word everlasting is olam, it means continuous in existence, this perpetual faithfulness, emeth, which means sureness or reliability. It's also translated as his, his uh, word or his truth, his faithfulness, his word, his truth, his everlasting word, his everlasting truth. So in effect, he's saying, listen, they should come. The nation should praise Yahweh. Why? Because of his great, all-powerful, prevailing, has said, has said, loyal love, covenant, faithfulness, mercy multiplied towards us. And because of his everlasting or perpetual word, truth, faithfulness. Wow, that's powerful. Love and faithfulness are the center of why we should worship and praise God. Why the psalmist is calling in this Hallel for the people to worship and serve God because of his love and his faithfulness. And I want to ask you a question. Does that sound familiar to you? Let me put it this way. What about if he was calling them to come and worship God because of his grace and truth? Because in effect, these are the same things. His love and faithfulness, his mercy multiplied, and his word is the same as his grace and his truth. Matter of fact, Psalm 117 is all about Jesus. Jesus is Psalm 117 in flesh. Like, this is what Jesus is all about. Jesus comes. That's why we can say that it is a summary of the gospel because Jesus is the gospel. And Psalm 117 is making a declaration that we should worship because of Jesus, because of his loyal love and his covenant faithfulness, because Jesus is grace and truth. That might sound familiar to you because in John chapter 1, uh, the Apostle John begins to talk to us about Jesus and he's uh, different than the other Gospels. He opens up with more of a retelling of the origin story of the world, a sort of retelling of Genesis. Genesis 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In John 1, 1, it says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God. Let me read a few verses from John chapter 1 here, verse 1, verse 14, verse 16, and verse 17. Here's what it says. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word, verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He goes on in 16 and 17, it says, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The so Psalm 117 sets up this beautiful foretelling of Jesus Christ. And Jesus shows up and he is the fullness. He is Psalm 117. This idea of covenant faithfulness, of loyal love, it, it, all wrapped up in flesh in Jesus. 
And Jesus shows up, as John tells us, as the word made flesh. Eugene Peterson would say that the, 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 that the word moved in to the neighborhood, right? And so Jesus shows up as the word made flesh, and he doesn't just show up on his own uh, uh, volition or in, in a way just kind of do his own thing. But no, he shows up full of grace and truth. The only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth, which simply means that Jesus is what God has to say. So when we think, what does God think about things? What does God think about the world? What does God think about sinners? What does God think about me? All I have to do is look at Jesus because Jesus is the word made flesh and Jesus is the only begotten of the Father. He's a revelation of the heart of the Father and he is full of abounding in grace and truth. <coughs> Amen. Now, notice it doesn't say that Jesus is full of wrath and judgment. It would seem the way that some people present the gospel these days, the way that some people talk about the kingdom of God these days, that you would think that God or Jesus are full of wrath and judgment. But it doesn't say wrath and judgment. It says grace and truth. And I want to tell you, both these things are important, that Jesus is equally full of grace and equally full of truth, equally abounding in these two things at the same time, that grace and truth are working together to produce or to demonstrate what the kingdom of God looks like for you and me. Now, grace without truth would equal sort of compromise, and we probably run into those people that I'm all grace, I'm all grace. And, you know, not really, it doesn't really matter what the Bible says because the grace of God covers me. Well, yes, the grace of God does cover us. But if we eliminate the truth of God and just try to function on the grace side of God, what we end up with is people who are generally compromised. Now, on the other side of that, if you have truth without grace, we have people who like to function in a, a spirit of condemnation. They want to go around and just hammer everybody for how dare you? Do you know Do you know what the word of God says about that? Do you know what the truth is about that? And without any sort of grace in their lives or grace upon their lips, they are condemning people. But when we take this beautiful idea of grace and truth together, what we end up with is Jesus, who is abounding in grace and truth. And I don't know about you, but I want my life to be a reflection of Christ. I don't want it to be a reflection of compromise. I don't want it to be a reflection of condemnation. I want it to be a reflection of Christ. As Paul said, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Well, how do we imitate Christ? By living by these ideas of grace and truth. Almost like two tracks that a train would run on or two wings that an airplane relies upon in the air. Both are equally important and have function for us. And so the gospel is the glorious unveiling of Christ. And so this is why I said Psalm 117 is um, this summary of the gospel because Psalm 117 finds its fulfillment in Jesus in John 1. And in Jesus in John 1, we see this glorious unveiling of Jesus Christ, which is the good news of the kingdom of God or the gospel. It tells us that Moses offered us the law, a set of rules, with consequences that was unattainable. There was no one who was able to uh, faithfully uphold the law. 
But here comes Jesus. Verse 17 tells us that Jesus was grace and truth. And grace and truth is this sort of glorious dance of the kingdom of God. I love this idea of grace and truth and that Jesus was abounding in both of these things. Now, I just want to break out a few elements of grace and truth and how the two of these things work together. I'm sure there's a lot more ways you can think of how grace and truth work together, but I have a few that I just want to walk through real quickly. First is this, grace is the basis of our relationship with God. Grace is the basis of our relationship with God. Ephesians 2 verses 8 and 9 says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So it's important to always remember that grace is the basis or the foundation of our relationship with God. Meaning this, there is nothing that we could do to earn a relationship with God. It is His grace and His grace alone that comes and provides for us the opportunity to have a relationship with Him. That means that there's nothing that I can do to make God love me more. There's nothing that I can do to make God love me less. It's all based, he loves me unconditionally based upon his grace, this free gift of God, so that I can't boast that I have earned God's grace. No, it is the basis and the foundation for our relationship with God. By grace, we have been saved. By grace, we have been able to be a part or called into the kingdom of God. Now, as grace is the basis for our relationship with God, truth is the boundary, the boundary for our relationship with God. Now, this is important. James 5, 19 and 20 says this, Brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will have a soul uh, will save a soul rather from death and cover a multitude of sins. And so what is James talking about here? If you read between the lines, he's saying, listen, truth is defining for us some boundaries. And if we have a brother who, who wanders outside of the boundaries of our relationship with God, that we should go and call them back into the boundaries. Every good relationship has boundaries. The Old Testament constantly declared to the children of God, have no other gods apart from me. The Ten Commandments set up these clear boundaries for the relationship that God wanted to have with the children of Israel. And so grace provides for us the basis of our relationship with God. And truth provides for us the boundaries of our relationship with God. This isn't a relationship where anything goes. This isn't a relationship where que sera, sera, what will be, will be. No, 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 no. The scriptures tell us that because we are a part of the, because we are called children of the light, that we should walk in the light, that we should put off our sinful nature, our sinful desires. What is that doing? It's establishing boundaries for us. What the truth of God does, the word of God does for us is it begins to teach us how we should live and establishes for establishes for us the boundaries in which we should function and operate in. And that's a beautiful thing. It's difficult to, to live a life or be in a relationship where there are no boundaries. And truth calls us into the boundaries of the kingdom of God and says, live this way. Now, grace offers us accessibility to the kingdom of God. 
It offers us accessibility to the kingdom of God. Hebrews 4, 16 says, Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. The grace of God is the very thing that has given us access into his presence that we can come before his throne, that throne of grace, and worship God and bring him our needs and, 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 and lay our lives before him. It's grace that tore the veil in the temple when Jesus uh, died on the cross, providing access once and for all for you and me to go boldly before the throne of grace, boldly into the presence of of God. Grace provides for us an accessibility to God's presence. And truth offers us accountability in God's presence. Galatians 5, 7 and 8 says this. Paul writing to the church in Galatia says, you ran well, but who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. And what is Paul doing here? Paul is using truth to bring accountability to those in the church in Galatia. He's telling them, listen, you are doing good. You are running. You are staying in the boundaries of the kingdom of God. But all of a sudden, something happened and you got outside of the boundaries. And I want to bring some accountability to you and say, come back in to the boundaries. So, Grace provides this accessibility into God's presence and truth provides this accountability in God's presence where we give an account for how we've been living. If this is sort of the idea of what the fruit of the Spirit does for us, right? The truth of the fruit of the Spirit is its accountability. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And against such things, there is no law. What he's saying is that if you live according to these uh, fruit of the Spirit, there is nothing, no law that can be spoken against you. Why? Because you've been accountable to the ways of the kingdom of God if you live this way. And so grace offers accessibility into his presence. And truth offers us accountability when we're in his presence. These things are what are true. Live by these things. Remember, this is talking about Jesus. So Jesus offers us the basis of our relationship and Jesus also provides for us the boundary of our relationship. Jesus offers us accessibility into the kingdom of God and Jesus also offers us accountability in the kingdom of God. And lastly, this part I love, grace makes the truth free. Grace makes the truth free. Free. Romans 5.15 says the free gift is not like the offense. For if by one man's offense many died, much more by the grace of God and the gift by the grace of one man, though one man, Jesus Christ abounded to many. And so here's what grace does. Grace comes in and says you don't have to pay a price for the truth. You don't have to pay a price for the, the, the basis or, or, or the boundary, uh, the accessibility or the accountability. It's not your dime that's being paid. It's on Jesus and Jesus alone. The grace of God has made the truth free to us. 
so that we don't have to offer any more sacrifices. We don't have to do certain things or climb certain mountains or attain certain levels of spirituality in order to, to earn some sort of level in the kingdom of God, earn some sort of higher truth or higher knowledge. No, grace makes all of the truth free. It's a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. And as grace makes the truth free, hear me here, truth makes you free. Grace makes the truth free, and the truth makes you free. John 8, 32, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. I don't know about you, but I want to live in the freedom of the kingdom of God live in a place where I am free to worship Jesus because I've been living in the same sort of mindset as Jesus himself, full of grace and truth, full of grace and truth, and allowing the grace and truth of the kingdom of God to mold and shape, redirect, reorient my life for the sake of his kingdom, his purpose, and his call. What is it that you can do this week to sort of focus your heart Focus your mind, uh, shift maybe uh, the way that you've been viewing even the situation that we're in to say, Lord, show me your grace and your truth. Through Jesus, show me your grace and your truth. Help me to lean into your grace and your truth this week, this day even. For some of us, it's a day-to-day situation. Uh, Ann Voskamp said this. I was at a conference uh, virtually, EQ conference this week, and she said this, we're all in the same storm but we're not all in the same boat. And that's a true statement. All of us are processing this differently. All of us are walking through this in different ways, but we can all stop and ask the Lord, hey, God, help me to see your grace and your truth in all of this. Help me to live according to you. Help me to lean into your grace and your truth in the middle of this situation that we're in together. Will you do that this week? I hope this encourages you that Psalm 117, what a beautiful Psalm a summary of the gospel, in flesh and made full in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let me pray for you. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for your truth. We thank you for what you've offered to us through your son, Jesus, the story of the kingdom of God and the gospel. Help us, Lord, to lean into that this week. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.